um, the book of Romans that are kind of pushed together here. Romans 6, verses 3 through 4, and uh, Romans 8, verses 12 through 14. So hear God's word to us this morning from the Apostle Paul. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. And then in verse chapter 8, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. The word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you teach us about the meaning of baptism this morning. Um, we have just um, witnessed and enacted the rite and sacrament of holy baptism. And it is not a reality that simply lay in our past, perhaps before we can even remember, but it is an ongoing uh, grace in our life, an ongoing pattern for understanding how you work in us to save us. And so be with us this morning as we reflect on the Holy Sacrament of Baptism and the work of your Spirit in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what does it mean to baptize your children? I've already given one answer to that question. Let me give another answer from Paul. And it applies to all of us who are baptized. It means that even though the life of our children has just begun, it means that you are introducing them to the reality of death. Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that we, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I think Martin Luther um, understood the, the logic and deep meaning of Romans 6, perhaps as good as anybody. Uh, writing about baptism, he says, the life of the Christian from baptism to the grave is nothing else than the beginning of a blessed death. The beginning of a blessed death. From the hour of our baptism, God begins to kill nature and sin to prepare us for death and resurrection at the last day. Baptism and baptizing your children is you initiating and preparing them for a blessed death. Morbid, huh? <laughs> in almost all cultures universally, children are a sign of life. Uh, this is the case even in the scripture, a sign of life and a sign of innocence. However, the Bible understands that even though our children are a sign of life, they aren't, they aren't innocent. <laughs> this is what we call the doctrine of original sin. The Christian understanding of the person is that we are born in original sin. We, when we leave our mother's wombs, we are, we are moving away from God. 
This is our natural trajectory, our natural bent. What our instincts will lead us to do is to lead and move in our lives away from what original sin means. There is no child that is born innocent. No matter how adorable, <laughs> no matter how cute, all children have a disability that impairs a proper relationship with God. Just like their parents, someday they will wrestle with the full weight and reality of sin in their lives. And just like their parents, they need to be saved from their sin. They need a Savior. This is a morbid reality. And I think the word morbid is the appropriate word. Um, in the medical profession, they talk about morbidity. Morbidity rates in a population. And morbidity, morbidity refers to uh, disease and the amount of disease and the conditions of disease within the general population. So high morbidity is, is there's a lot of disease. And within the human population and the human race, there is a 100% morbidity rate of original sin. And it leads to a 100% mortality rate and death. Uh, the physician turned pastor uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the moment we enter the world and we begin to live, we also begin to die. Your first breath is also one of the last one you will ever take. There is a principle of decay leading to death in every one of us. All of us are born into the reality of sin, which will eventually end not only in our biological death, but in our spiritual death. That is unless there is a miraculous intervention. Baptism is that miraculous intervention. Baptism marks the beginning of a miraculous intervention of God to rescue us from the cycle of sin and death into which we are born. Baptism is a disruption, if you will, a stick in the spokes of the wheel of death that are turning and turning and turning. Baptism is that which sets us on a different pathway in a very paradoxical way that doesn't make sense. Because in baptism, we come to participate in the death of Jesus Christ himself, which when we do that, then is released in our li life, resurrection life. The paradox is that life doesn't come through us trying to grasp it for ourselves. Life comes through embracing death, the death of Jesus. To be baptized is then to be made a participant in death, into Jesus' dying and into his rising. Our culture teaches us to embrace life through a denial of death. But the gospel in baptism teaches us that we only gain life through an embrace of death. Baptism reveals to us the pattern of the gospel as it unfolds in our life. And the pattern is cross-resurrection. The pattern is making dead, making alive. In the words or the language of the old Puritans, it is the pattern of mortification, mortification. To mortify something is to put it to death. To vivify it is to bring it to life. That is the pattern of the gospel in our lives. It's making dead in order to make alive. This is precisely what Jesus has in mind and from our call to confession. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Again, there we have that paradoxical logic. Deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, every day, and you will live. Now, this call to pick up our cross and to die to ourselves, um, it is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. What it means to follow Jesus, and it is a summons, it's a call, it's a responsibility on our part. However, we should not think of this calling and responsibility simply as something that we do on our own. It's on our shoulders, right? God gets us through the door, oh, we're baptized, we're saved, and now we, it's up to us to finish the job. Rather, the call to discipleship really is a call for God's continuing work in us and in our lives, in our hearts, through the Holy Spirit. And that's why I think baptism is so important. And that's why we talk about baptism as a grace. It's a sacrament. It's a grace. It involves us and our faith, and we respond, but it's God's grace going before us. It's God's grace working in us. And it's so important to have a baptismal a baptism kind of imagination about your Christian life because it helps you understand what God's up to, what the Holy Spirit is up to in your life. It reveals the work of God in us. And so that's what I want to focus in on this morning. The ministry of the Holy Spirit through the whole course of our life is to affect this reality that we just celebrated in the sacrament of baptism. That is, if you want to know what the Spirit is doing in your life, that's it. It is making dead in order to make alive. It is making you to participate more fully in the dying and rising of Jesus. And so I just want to reflect on those and think about, well, what does this mean, practically speaking, in my spiritual life? How do I think this out? How does it actually interact with my own experience as I seek to follow Jesus and make sense of my life? So I just want to look at two Two sides of this, right? The making alive, or the making dead and the making alive. Mortification and vivification. Everywhere in the Bible, the work and person of the Holy Spirit is depicted in terms of the categories of life, vitality, power, the source of new creation. In the Nicene Creed, the Spirit is referred to as the Lord and the giver of life. The very strong image in the Bible of the Holy Spirit as connected to the very source of life. But in this passage, uh, in chapter 8, Paul reveals to us a very uh, unusual work of the Spirit. It is a death works. It is a death works of the Spirit. Look at what he says. The Spirit does. So, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, so to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See, here we, we have this sense. We don't often think of the Spirit in terms of helping us put things to, de to death. But that precisely is what Paul understands what part of the ministry of the Spirit is a death works of sorts. So what does that look like? What does that mean? And what are those deeds of the body that Paul is talking about here? And this requires a bit of explanation. So I think it's better to, to talk about them as misdeeds of the sorts <laughs> of the body. Um, but, but Paul's reference there to deeds of the body is, is a synonym for the other word he uses is flesh. And the word flesh 
um, is, is don't think of flesh in physical categories. Because for Paul, the flesh is not a physical category. It's not the body. He's not talking about the body. The, the flesh is spiritual. The, spa, the flesh is, is like a negative spiritual impulse in us. That is to actually just look away from God and to do what we want to do outside of God. That's what the flesh is. It's a spiritual, it's a negative, uh, evil sort of instinct in us that turns away from God. The flesh, again, to, to refer to Martin Luther, he talks about sin as to be curved in upon oneself. That to be, sin is to be curved in upon oneself. That's what the flesh does. And that's the logic of our lives, unless there's a disruption, is for us to kind of turn in upon ourselves, to, to see ourselves as the center of the universe, to interpret all of reality as if we are sort of the ones who know the knowledge and have the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, this, again, is the flesh. Now, you might be wondering, well, if we're baptized and Jesus washes away our sins, we need to keep putting to death the misdeeds of the body. Doesn't baptism forgive our sins? Doesn't mean, <clears throat> doesn't mean our sins have been taken away. No. <laughs> Again, part of Paul's, uh, we'll call it his anthropology, his understanding of the person, is that to be a person in the world, in a fallen world, means you have this flesh that will, you can never completely eradicate. Um, again, the Puritans would talk about this, and they use the, the term indwelling sin. Indwelling sin is the flesh. It's that, it's that sin, that, 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 that part of us that points to the ways that our natures, our personalities, our temperaments are bent in and broken in a certain way. When you think about, like, if you're a Christian and you, you've been a Christian for, for your many years, you know that like, there are certain sins in your life that haunt you. <laughs> it's like, no matter how much you learn or understand that I shouldn't do this, you still do it, right? You, you still like, you know, you still get angry. Or you still worry and worry and fret. Or you're greedy and you're jealous. Or you're just very proud, right? And, and these are... Again, all of our personalities are different. All of us are bent in unique and special ways. That's part of what it means to be an original sinner, right? It's your own special thing. All of us have it. That's indwelling sin. And it, no matter how hard you try, you will never be able to completely eradicate that from your life. There's no such thing as perfection in the Christian life prior to glorification. And that word glorification is really like this is what will be after we die and we see God face to face. All of our indwelling sin, all of our flesh will be completely removed from us. But that means now that we struggle with our sin natures with our flesh and that we have to keep those things in check. And Paul wants us to know that the way you do that is by walking in light of the Spirit. Um, indwelling sin and the flesh never go on vacation. <laughs> They never, ever go on vacation. It's not a reality that you can ever fully eliminate. Um, which means that, what does progress then in, in holiness mean in our life? What does progress and sanctification mean in our life? It's not complete perfection, but what it means is that you learn. You learn how to manage. You learn how to get ahead of the sin in your life. And I like to use the image, you know, I think of the dandelion. 
if actual sin is the dandelion going to seed before, you know, after it becomes a flower and it spreads its, its sort of pollen and it seeds other places and so it can propagate new dandelions, holiness and the life of sanctification is getting at that flower before it goes to seed, right? And if, you, you know, if you're a person that uh, likes a nice yard like myself, I, you know, I go around and I'm always trying to dig out these dandelions, right? And you know the root of a dandelion is like that long. And you're like digging deep to pull it out. And I never manage to get it out. There's always like a little stem that's root that's in there. And it comes up again eventually. That's the reality of sin in our lives. Like you can try to dig as deep as you can. I mean, you'll tear up your whole yard. That, but it's going to come back. And so that's why the, it's part of the Christian life is just recognizing that. That no matter how much progress you make, how much Bible you learn, how mature you become, how, I mean, I don't care. I mean, no matter how, you, you will never <laughs> be beyond a point in which the dandelions won't pop up and possibly go to seed. Which is why so much of the Christian life is just like weeding a garden. You're just like weeding a garden constantly because they're always coming up. That's what Jesus means. Pick up your cross daily. It's just popping. It's, it's weeding the garden so that other things can live, right? And again, this is a work of the Spirit in us as well because the Spirit will direct us to, hey, you've got some weeds in this corner over here that you need to attend to. Now let me try to go even deeper here in terms of our application and help you make sense of how the flesh or indwelling sin takes shape in our experience and lives. Um, now, according to Jesus and to Paul, the deep root of sin is the human heart. The root of sin, the source of sin, is the human heart. It's not the outside world that pollutes us. The outside world can influence us and harm us in negative ways, but the source, the ultimate source of sin is not out there in, you know, political parties or bad media or bad influences. The, everybody has their own source of sin within their own heart. I mean, this is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him and makes him unclean, but from the heart comes evil thoughts. It is the heart that is the deepest root and source of sin, of evil desire in the world. And actions come from desires, right? That's how it works. We have desires, and from our desires come our actions, which then can sometimes be sin. And so the Christian tradition, as it, as it developed, began to talk about dealing with sin and thinking about sin in terms of d desire, in disordered desire. That sin is a form of disordered desire. Like we, we desire the wrong things, right? The flesh, our indwelling sin nature, distorts our desires. So it's that we desire the wrong things. We want some things too much, and we want other things not enough, right? Or we don't know how to relate to things, right? And so we, we expect too much from them, and so we distort their, their created purpose, or we abuse them or misuse them, and often it's our own selves. We love ourselves too much. If you love yourself too much, you will abuse yourself because <laughs> you don't know how to love yourself unless you love God first. And I think this is important because, again, we think about sin in these categories that is like, there's sin, bad, right? And uh, we think that we should always just 
Sin is just an evil, just going to be right there. We're going to know it when we see it. But it's the subtlety of the human heart in desiring. Most of the sins in our life, and except for some of the big ones, we sin and we don't really realize we're sinning. Like, we're just, this is what I want, or this is what seems right to me. We're always desiring, we're always loving, and making our way through the world in that way. And, and in the Bible's terms, like, to be a sinner is like to be like a destructive lover, a terrible and destructive lover. You just love so much, but you don't know how to love in the right ways. To be a lover is to be a worshiper. That's what God created us to be. Last week we looked at how God, uh, the chief end of man and woman is to know God and glorify Him for ever. To know Him, enjoy Him, to love Him. He created us for Himself, as Augustine says. And that that, uh, we are restless until we find rest in Him. And so when we substitute other things in the place of God, whether it's marriage or family or career or hobbies or just one's own self, it is bound to turn out badly. I, I like to use the image, I've used this before, as like the human heart is like an electrical box in which an amateur electrician went in and set up the house. And so he's got 15 amp lines going to what appliances that need 20 amps. 20 amps is a lot of power, and if you run it on a 15 amp wire, if you, you're always gonna blow your, your breaker, right? And if you don't have a breaker, your line is going to have too much energy and heat, and you'll create a fire, right? And so the human heart is kind of like an electrical box that's just been, somebody pulled out all the wires, and they just stuck them back in randomly in different spots. And so, like, you've got these currents going the wrong thing. So, you know, the reality is, is, like, the current that goes to God is a high amperage, right? If you try to, to address that desire in your life, with these other little sidelines, 10 amp, 15 amp, 20 amp, and you're trying to run your life on those, it is going to create a fire in your heart. That's, again, this is the idea of desire. And that brings us back to the role of the Holy Spirit in putting to death the misdeeds of the body. How is the Spirit at work in your life? The work of the Holy Spirit in our life is like, he's like an open heart surgeon where he cuts us who opens us up and he begins to reorder and repair our heart. Imagine your heart is like that electrical box, right? But he's, he's actually like a surgeon. He's, he's putting you under and he's reformatting, reordering your desires. And you think about it. I mean, we, we often feel helpless to change our desires, right? How do I, how do I change how I, what I desire, what I want? But again, this is, a, this is part of the hidden work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that he gets into us, and, and, and again, there's that aspect in which he has to kill us. <laughs> he has to put us under the knife, and it is extremely painful because we have all these disordered desires. Sin is like a cancer that cannot be removed. It's like a cancer that cannot remo- be removed. In the Christian life, oftentimes we approach it like we just need vitamin supplements. I just need vitamin supplements. It's just a little Bible, a little pick-me-up, church once in a while, you know, as if I just, I mean, I, my immune system is a little weakened, but if I take some vitamins, I'll be fine. But no, it's so much more radical. Our situation is so much more radical. You have cancer, you need chemotherapy, and lifelong radiation treatments. <laughs> 
That is the reality. That is the reality of sin. And oftentimes, when God does his chemo work on us, it will feel so painful. It will feel so wrong. God, what are you doing? But sometimes, again, you have to kill to make alive. And that's precisely what happens in chemo, right? You have to kill in order to make alive. But again, the purpose of chemotherapy is not to be miserable. <laughs> um, the purpose is to live. The purpose is vitality and new life. And so, in uh, close, I want to reflect with you on that making alive side of the work of the Spirit in our lives. How does the Spirit make us alive? There's two things I want to draw your attention to. The first thing is this, that the, the, spirit, the spirit gives us holy desires. Uh, the great tragedy, arguably the greatest tragedy in our lives, is to not desire the right things. <laughs> to not desire the right things. One of the signs that the Spirit is at work in your life and in your heart is that he begins to give you new desires and new appetites for things that you never thought were possible. Paul says earlier in chapter 8, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. See, that's what, to set our minds, and Paul here, mind is, is, is not just like, our thinking faculties, it's, it's our whole orientation. To set our imaginations and our hearts on the Spirit is life and peace. The Spirit begins to work life and peace within us. I mean, I, I uh, became a Christian later in life, in high school, and I still have distinct memories of what it was like before I was a Christian. And I remember looking at Christians thinking, there's no way in the world I would ever want to become a Christian. I can't imagine a life that was more boring and less fun, and I was a 16-year-old, um, than that, right? I just had no desire whatsoever. I just like, it is, I could never even desire it. Even if I thought it was true, I don't even think I could want it to be true. And yet, obviously, I'm standing here. The Lord changed the course of my life. He gave me new desires, new appetites. He gave me a desire and an appetite for himself. And he does the same with us. The Spirit makes us alive, and he gives us new desires that we once lacked. And he transforms our inner life. And so we desire to obey the word. We desire to pray. We desire to be in church with God's people. We desire to follow Jesus. Again, this is a sign that the Spirit is working. He's given us new desires in our life. And just think about like, how mysterious this is, right? But the second sign of, of the Spirit's work of new life, of vivification, is this. It's so he gives us new desires, holy desires, but he also gives us a new identity. The second sign of vitality and new life um, is that the Lord gives us a new identity. Uh, Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. Now Paul makes, uh, I kind of a, a, a bit of a strange transition here or in his logic, right? Because he's talking about putting to death the deeds of the body, but then he begins to talk about being uh, sons and daughters of God. What's the connection? I think the, the connection is this. The, more you, the deeper you grow in your experience of mortification, being put to death, the misdeeds of the body, 
the more alive you will be in your understanding in a felt sense as beloved children of the Father. This is so important. The more we, we really put to death all the loves that hold us in thrall, that are destructive in our lives, that possess our hearts and our imagination, the more these are taken from us and put to death, the more we're able to know the love of the Father as beloved sons and daughters. To have this deepened sense that you are a son and daughter that's beloved of God is incredible. It is, a, it is the place of stability. It is the place of security. And the more this deepens in your life, when trials and tribulations come into your life, when suffering, when people criticize you unfairly or fairly, the less it will throw you off balance, the less it will throw you into a tailspin because you know that you're a beloved child of the Father. Again, this is a sign of God's, um, of the Spirit's work in our life. At the baptism of Jesus, the, the Spirit descended upon him, and the Father says before all from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. <laughs> and I want you to notice immediately that after Jesus, it, the Father, he's baptized, he has this incredible baptismal experience, right? The Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. The Father speaks from heaven these words of acclamation. It says then, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted and tested for 40 days and 40 nights. And it's so important that Jesus' baptism happens before he goes into the wilderness. Now, in the way we think about the world, we think it should be on the opposite end, right? Go into the wilderness, be faithful, don't give in to temptation. Be the obedient son, obedient daughter. And then when you're on the other side and you've proved yourself, then I will tell you you're my beloved son and my daughter. But that's not how it works. That's not how it worked for Jesus and it doesn't how it works for us. He says, you're my beloved son, you're my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. And then he sends you into the wilderness to suffer. <laughs> but it, your suffering isn't your punishment. And your suffering isn't that you have to prove something to God to, be, to belong. But the reality of your baptism, the reality that God loves you, has to be that which sustains you in the insecurity and the instability and the pain of the wilderness. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that not just, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the pattern of the Christian life. It is a paradox. It is cross-resurrection. It is making dead in order to make alive. And oftentimes, God will drive us into the wilderness, into times of seasons of suffering and hardship. And it is not to punish us, but it is that he might purify us, that he might fully capture our loves and have us for himself. See, to have God working death in your life, <laughs> friends, is far better than feasting on what the world calls life. To have God working death in your life, as painful as that might be, is far better than feasting on what the world calls life, because what the world calls life is actually death. 
I'm reminded of a scene at the very end of C.S. Lewis's book, The Horse and His Boy. And it is a scene, um, it's a scene where uh, one of the horses, uh, a mare named Wynn, finally meets Aslan. And so throughout the whole book, like the whole journey of the, the horses is they've been running from lions or lions, right? But Aslan, right, Aslan the lion, he's the king of Narnia. He's this majestic, terrifying uh, creature that embodies majestic terror and goodness and love all in one. And so the scene is like Quinn, the, the, the horse, she, she trots up too fearfully to Aslan the lion who's there at the very end, trembling, melting. And she says this, she says, please, you are so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I would sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. You may eat me if you like. I would sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. I would sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. I would sooner experience death in Jesus than be fed by the world's empty promises of life. Friends, to be consumed by God to be eaten by God, to be consumed by him, to have your hearts overflow with the flame of his love is better than anything this world can offer. Let's pray. Lord, the, the truth and the reality of baptism is one that defies our imagination. It defies our grasp. It defies the logic of the world and the way the world works and how the world teaches us to think about ourselves. And yet, even though baptism holds out to us a frightful promise, the promise of suffering and death, but also it holds out a far greater glory, which is life and love in you for eternity. Lord, I pray for these children who are baptized, that this is the beginning of a long journey in which they learn how to die in order to learn how to live. And they would know, Lord, that you go with them mysteriously. And I pray for all of us who are baptized, that we would renew our baptismal promises and have a sense of the way that you are working in us now in invisible ways. We thank you. Thank you for your word, and we thank you for your sacrament. We thank you for your love. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.